You're listening to the Roanoke Valley Church Podcast. In today's sermon, Kevin Bamber continues our series on covenant from Jeremiah 31. This lesson highlights the third statement of the new covenant, how all men will know God. Now it restores the people's desire for a close relationship with him. Kevin discusses about the reality of a waning desire for God, what God does to help stir our desires for him. Please check out our website at RoanokeValleyChurch.org or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Church. More resources, sermons, and links to help you be a part of what God is doing in the Roanoke Valley. And now, enjoy today's sermon. Thank you. All right, good morning, everybody. Yes, usually me coming up here means more singing. I might reference or mention a few songs today, but that is actually not why I'm standing at the center microphone. Uh, For any who don't know me out there, my name is Kevin Bamber, and I get the privilege of preaching the word to you this morning. So recently we have been going through a four-part series focusing on the concept of covenant, uh, a word that that we don't use a whole lot today, but as Ben and John told us, if you've ever been married, bought a car, bought a house, been in the military, or bought insurance, you have entered a covenant. So, And if you haven't done any of those yet, uh, that's probably most of them, but if you haven't, if by some miracle you have avoided all those covenants, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and prophesy covenants somewhere in your future. But anyway, we're talking about the covenants that God made with his people. Specifically, we've been focusing on um, Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant coming in Jesus. So he was speaking in the time when they were still under the covenant God made with Moses, but he was prophesying of a new covenant yet to come. And uh, we've been reading about that in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. So I will go ahead and read that to start us off. It is written, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbors or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So for anyone who wasn't able to join us for the last couple of Sundays... And as a refresher for us, because I don't know if y'all are like me, but it's easy to forget stuff. I know y'all know me for my memory, especially for birthdays, but I forget a lot of other stuff. My wife's actually been commenting on that recently. She's like, Kevin, it seems like you don't remember anything recently. Like, I remember stuff. I'm wearing clothes today. I, I didn't leave you guys behind at home. But anyway, but if you're anything like me, every now and again you need refreshers. So we're going to do a quick refresher about the things that John and Ben talked about in previous weeks. So both John and Benjamin defined for us the meaning of covenant. And it's pretty simple. It's an agreement between two parties that establishes a relationship, describes the relationship, and it also describes the obligation that those two parties have to one another in the agreement. Both John and Benjamin also highlighted something else that all of the covenants God had made with his people pretty much throughout the history of his interaction with us has been unique among covenants in that whereas typically in covenants, your marriage, insurance, military, car buying, whatever else you've done, 
there are equal obligations. The, the obligations of that covenant are equally fulfilled by both parties. But God is unique and that in the covenants he has made with us, he is the one doing all of the fulfilling of the obligations. And um, John spoke in this on the context of beginning in verse 33, talking about putting the law into the hearts and mind of the people. Now, it's easy um, to think, and when he was talking about that, he wasn't just saying, hey, know the law and obey the law. He was saying, yes, that, but the deeper context of that, meaning that we understand that God gave us the law, and he also gave us a spirit to help understand it and put it into practice so that we could be transformed. So even though we've got a law and there was an obligation to follow it, all of the tools, everything necessary to make that happen came from God, not from us. Ben spoke about this in the context of us being God's people and him being our God. Uh, he talked about how in this, in, 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 in this covenant, God, all of God's statements were, I will do this, I will, I will, I will, followed by promises. Covenants typically, with both, with both parties fulfilling obligations, the typical language of covenants was if then. Hey, if you do this, then I will do that for you in return. And even in the Mosaic Covenant, there are some of those statements. However, yet again, God, Ben reminded us that God committed to his people forever without condition, thus doing all of the fulfilling of the obligations. And that brings us to our focus of today. The third statement that God makes, beginning in Jeremiah 31, 34, where he says, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. In these first three statements made in this new covenant, there's an interesting progression that takes place. And it is that each statement describes an increasingly close relationship. So first he says that he'll put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So what that is, that is God entrusting us with something important to him. He's telling us what his will is, what his desires are, how, you know, how we commune with him, how we're supposed to relate with him. He gives us that. And that is, in, in giving someone something dear to you, entrusting that to them, it's a sign of a close relationship. Um, but it gets, what God did after that, everything he did made the relationship even closer. Um, and entrusting someone with something that you, you love is the start of a close relationship, but it's not the completion. Here, here's a great example. Wells Fargo gets all of my money and my mortgage. But I don't know Mr. Wells or Mrs. Fargo. I don't know either of them personally. We don't have a close relationship, but I've entrusted them with something important to me. And so God did that also in giving us his law. But God goes a step further. The next statement he makes after saying he gives them his law is that I will be your God and you will be my people. And so that was God collectively claiming the Israelites as his own, which is to say, hey, when people hear my name, or they see me, they're going to think about you. And conversely, when they see you, or they hear about you, they will think of me. But it gets even closer still with what we're talking about today. 
Thirdly, he says, when he says, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. This is each of the Israelites knowing God personally. Now, the interesting thing about this is also that in the context that God, of the covenants that God had made with his people prior to the one with Moses, um, and in the context of the history of Israel under the time of the covenant with Moses, this idea of each person knowing God personally is both a restoration of the nature of the former covenants and also a foreign concept to the Israelites that, at the time that Jeremiah made this prophecy. It's a, it's a restoration because if you think of the covenants that God made with the patriarchs and the prophets, he had personal relationships with a lot of those people. If any of y'all remember from Genesis, there was a point where God and Abraham are talking about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, you know what? These people, they're messing up. I got to take the city out. Abraham then proceeds to have a conversation with God about, hey, would you spare the city if there were this many righteous persons? God says, yes, for that many I would. Then Abraham's like, okay, okay. Well, what if there were only a few less? And they go back and forth talking about the fate of this place. And I don't think Abraham would have been bold enough to do that without a close personal relationship with God. Um, Jacob's another great example. Jacob also in Genesis, when he was on his way back to um, the family of his mother to find a wife, in the middle of the desert, he meets God and they wrestle. They wrestle all night until dawn, and then at dawn, Jacob asks God for a blessing. Again, close personal contact, a relationship there, talking with God, wrestling with God, literally. And then later, and then in Exodus, Moses, who, not really a patriarch, but a prophet, it says in Exodus 33 that God talked to Moses face to face as one talks to a friend. So the idea of God's people, the people that he makes covenants with having a close personal relationship with him wasn't completely unheard of in, in the long run. But at the time of the Israelites who were hearing Jeremiah prophesy, it was a very foreign concept. And part of that was, you know, the nature of the covenant with Moses. As Benjamin reminded us last week, the covenant with Moses was mediated by prophets, priests, and sacrifices. Now, some prophets definitely had close relationships with God. Moses himself, as we just mentioned. Um, other prophets like Samuel and Elijah definitely had conversations and close contact with God. The priests, once a year, they would go into the holy place. Well, actually, the holy place they would go into a lot, but the most holy place they would go into once a year to offer sacrifices in the presence of God. But most Israelites only heard God's words through the mouth of the prophet. God told, talked to the prophet, the prophet told the people. Or, if the Israelites were going to the temple, they were usually in the outer courts knowing, hey, someone else is in there in the presence of God, but I'm out here waiting to hear how it went. Not sure what they did while they were waiting, but anyway, they weren't in there in the presence of God. They were in the outer courts. And that brings me to the one point that I want to bring to you with this message, and that is, in the new covenant in Jesus, the one that Jeremiah is prophesying, one of God's purposes was to restore his people's desire 
for a close personal relationship with him. I'll say that again. In the new covenant in Jesus, one of God's purposes was to restore his people's desire for a close personal relationship with him. Now that one point prompts two questions. First, what happened to the Israelites' desire for a close personal relationship with God during the Mosaic Covenant? Secondly, what did God do to bring that desire back? So as for the first question, you might be thinking, Kevin, this, this makes absolutely no sense. I'm, I'm, I'm at the point of walking out that door because this doesn't make any sense. So we've got all of these covenants prior to Moses where the people he's making covenants with talk with him, reason with him about saving cities, wrestle with him in the desert, and talk to him face to face with a friend. Jeremiah is prophesying with one yet to come where they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Neighbors aren't going to have to say to each other, know the Lord, because they all know me least to greatest. So why? Why right in the middle is it different? Kevin, I thought God was unchanging. Arlene read for us out of Malachi. Another thing it says in Malachi is, I, the Lord, change not. So what was different? So to shed some light on this, we're going to look at one of the most familiar parts of the Bible, the giving of the Ten Commandments. I know you've seen the little stickers, the two little stone tablet stickers on people's cars. If any of you have driven through Giles County, through Narrows recently, there's a billboard, Ten Commandments on it. Uh, I'm sure many of you, like me, have seen the fantastic 1956 motion picture starring Charlton Heston. Yeah, I see you. I see you there. Morris family, you watch it every Easter, right, honey? Ten Commandments. Anyway. There we go. So we're going to look at the giving of the Ten Commandments, but there's a bit of a curveball here. We're not actually going to talk about the Ten Commandments themselves, but rather what happened immediately before and immediately after they were given. So this account is in Exodus 19 and 20, which we will not read in their entirety for the sake of time. So I'm just going to give you a synopsis and read a few verses. So here's what was going on. Three months to the day, after leaving Egypt, God called Moses and the Israelites to Mount Sinai to make a covenant with them. He gave Moses some instructions concerning the people. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to tell them to wait at the foot of Mount Sinai for three days. And during that time, Moses was going to go up the mountain, talk with God, come back down. And then, after a long trumpet blast or ram's horn blast, God said, then they can come up the mountain to meet. So the Lord descended to the mountain in a dense cloud with increasingly loud trumpet blasts, thunder and lightning, and a violent earthquake. Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments, and then he came back down. And then what happens? Third day, the long-awaited trumpet blast, the signal that the people, it's, 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 so it's like at the start of the race where you got the guy waiting with the gun, or you got the guy doing that, you know, drag race, whatever. Anyway, that was the signal to go. That loud trumpet blast came. I'm not going to try to imitate it. I don't know what it sounded like. It would be... What I would do compared to how it sounded that day would be lame, so we're just not going to go there. But anyway, boom, that trumpet blast sound. That's the signal. You guys can go up the mountain. And then what? What did they do? Did they go up the mountain? They didn't. So picking up in Exodus 20, verse 18, we're going to read what happened. It says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. 
God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So right here, the Israelites requested that Moses, rather than God, speak to them. And this was out of their fear for what they saw. Moses reminds them of this again in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 17. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. So again, the people asked for an intermediary between themselves and God, and God granted them what they asked for. Now, a couple of points that, that have to come along with this. We believe in an omniscient God. And an omniscient God knew if I come down to the mountain with smoke and fire and earthquakes and everything, they're going to be afraid. But, I don't, but, but, but the reason God and, did this was not to say, <laughs> I don't want to deal with all of these people. I don't want close personal relationships with all that. Forget that. I'm going to scare them really bad so that they only want one person to talk to me. So... I don't know if y'all have ever seen Bruce Almighty, but he's got, he, when, when he, he gets to play God for a day, which that's not where we're going with this message. Anyway, but he gets like, they, they, they put prayers in the form of emails, and he's like, I'm supposed to answer all these prayers? Morgan Freeman playing God is trying to show him, hey, buddy, you can't, you can't be me. But anyway, that's not our God. God is willing to have a close personal relationship with every person, and he did not show up with that kind of power to scare the people out of having a relationship with him. What Moses said back in Exodus was that the Lord, um, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And what, and what do I mean by that? The reason he said that was he wasn't telling them to be afraid to have a relationship, but for a different reason. Up to this point in Exodus, if you've ever read it before, you might remember numerous times where the ex things going on in the Exodus were difficult. They were not easy. They didn't have food. They didn't have quail. They didn't have water. And at each one of those turns, they would say things like, oh, geez, if only, we, if only God had, had left us in Egypt to die, because at least we could have sat around pots of meat eating gladly and waited to die if we had stayed in Egypt. Or, oh, if only... Oh, I can't believe this guy Moses. He brought us out in the desert just to starve us. It would be better to go back to Egypt. God showed up in power first, I think, to dissuade his people from doing that. The show of power came. You've got to consider the context out of which they were coming. These people were emerging as a people from 400 years of powerlessness as slaves. And after having been through that, I think it was very helpful for them to see the God who is with us and the God who is leading us is powerful. And we should fear him in his mighty hand more than that of the people who, who, who had power over us for so many years. And um, anyway, yeah, so lost my place, got to gather myself real quick here. And beyond that, 
in some ways, you know, the life they had in Egypt was it was it was hard, but it was familiar. And so there was a fear in facing, and, and what they were seeing out of God was very different than they were. What they did principally in Egypt was make bricks. Well, now you're walking, you're eating bread from heaven, you're getting water out of rocks, and you're seeing smoke and fire and earthquakes. Two very different kinds of things. And another thing that I, that I, that I don't want to do by sharing this account of Israel is I don't want to blame them and say, silly Israelites for being afraid. All they had to do was not be afraid, and they would have had these close personal relationships with God. I try to put myself in their place at the foot of a mountain. I'm imagining myself standing at the foot of a mountain, looking at black smoke, thunder and lightning, um, increasingly loud trumpet blasts and an earthquake. I'm going to tell you all right here, the earthquake would have been enough for me. For all y'all who know me, I am a Midwesterner. And in the Midwest, we have tornadoes. Tornadoes are scary, don't get me wrong, but I know what to do. I go underground. You go underground, you're probably going to be okay. I haven't experienced really any earthquakes in my life. That's scary to me. I don't know, maybe Onward and Arlene being from out west aren't scared of them. I don't know if Brad and Eileen Strong are watching at home, but they were in California. Maybe earthquakes aren't scary to them, but those are scary to me. See, the whole earth is shaking. I don't have anywhere to go. You can go, under, go underground, Kevin, that's great. No, that's shaking. Oh, I'm outside. Oh, hey, there is stuff like mountains and trees and buildings that this earthquake could knock onto me. Oh, or the earth could open up under me and swallow me. Earthquakes are scary. An earthquake for me alone, in that situation, standing at the foot of that mountain with all of that going on, just the earthquake, I would have been like, guys, he, wait, wait, the trumpet blasted. We're supposed to get closer to that? I, I, I don't know, guys. I'm feeling a little better here. So I definitely sympathize with their reaction of fear, and I'm not judging them for having it because I didn't see God that way. And another thing that happened, one of the other parts of the Mosaic Covenant was Moses was specifically told to tell the people, you need to talk about this experience. Don't let the people forget. Don't let them forget about the Exodus, which came with power and plagues and Red Sea opening and closing. Don't let them forget about this Exodus and this meeting at Mount Sinai. So the subsequent generations of people under the Mosaic Covenant, when they heard about meeting God, the prospect of meeting God, approaching God for anything, and actually seeing him, this was what they heard about. They heard about smoke, fire, earthquakes, trumpet blasts, smoke, and really loud trumpets. That's probably going to instill a little bit of fear. And we can see this in people who are under the Mosaic Covenant well after this first generation. Um, Elijah's a good example. Elijah goes to Mount Horeb to talk to God. And a lot of phenomena, like the ones in Exodus, happen. There's a rock-splitting wind. There's a great fire. There's a great earthquake. Elijah's in a cave this whole time, like, nope, 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 nope. After that, he hears a gentle whisper, and he knows that's God. And, he didn't, and Elijah doesn't say, oh, great, the scary stuff, the earthquake, wind, and the fire is gone. Now I hear a gentle whisper. I am going to strut right out there confidently. Me and God are going to look at each other dead in the face and talk. No, he, he goes out of the front. He hobbles out the front of this cave, cave, covering his face with his cloak. Reaction of fear. Isaiah is another great example. Early on in his time as a prophet, Isaiah relates an account of him seeing God. It says that Isaiah goes into the throne room and sees God seated high and exalted on the throne. 
the train of his robe is filling the temple. And there's angels, six-winged angels standing on either side of the God. With two wings, they're flying. With two, they're covering their eyes. With two, they're covering their feet. I'm trying to put myself in, in his shoes. What do I do? Oh, wait, I'm supposed to cover my eyes with one hand, cover my feet with the other. Like, I would not know what to do in that situation. And what was his reaction? Wow, it is great to see the all-powerful, living, mighty God. No, he says, woe to me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. So Isaiah's meeting with God was not one that he was initially excited about. He was afraid that it meant his ruin. Moving forward, even though Peter became a great witness and preacher of the new covenant, he was born under the Mosaic covenant and reacted with fear upon realizing who Jesus was. Luke 5, 1 through 11 talks about the miraculous catch of fish. So you know, a lot of the early disciples who became apostles were fishermen, as you remember. And they're on the boat with Jesus fishing all night. They catch nothing. In the morning, Peter's like, listen, we've been fishing all night. We're fishermen. We know what we're doing here. This hasn't been working, but because you say so, we'll do it. They throw the net over on the other side. They catch an amazing amount of fish. No thunder, no lightning, no smoke, no trumpets, but a miracle. And once that miracle happened, Peter knew, I am in the presence of God. And what did he do? Did he say, this is awesome. This was like the worst fishing trip ever, and now we have a lot of fish. Thank you. I know that you're the Lord. I know you're God. This is awesome. No, not his reaction. He falls at the knees of Jesus, and he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. So this reaction of fear at meeting God was one that the Israelites had from the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant, and many who met the Lord personally, subsequently, after that, had a similar reaction of fear. All right, so I guess I've done a pretty good job here at painting a very bleak picture here. God wanting to draw near to people in personal relationships and the people responding with desiring distance, intermediaries reacting with woe or fear of some sort of ruination. So now, that brings us to the second question prompted by this idea that God's purpose, one of his purposes in the new covenant is making us want yet again close personal relationship with us. And that is, what did, what did he do? What did he do to get us to desire a close personal relationship with him once again? The answer is pretty simple. It's Jesus. Um, I love what Onward shared in Hebrews, talking about Jesus as a high priest who understands what we've been through. God came down to us. God came here to us as his only begotten son, Jesus, in such a way that people didn't have to trek through the desert and climb mountains and face thunder and lightning anymore the way that Moses, Elijah, or the Israelites had to do to meet God. He came down to us, faced, took the form of a man, faced temptations, and lived among us. Um, and God sent Jesus at the, at, definitely at the right time. Remember that the first part of Jeremiah 31, 34 says, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. There was a lot of that going on at the time in Israel during the time that Jesus walked the earth. The religious authorities of Jesus' time were all about telling people to know the Lord. 
and by know the Lord, what they were saying is know the law. Now, there was a reason for this. Their thinking was largely a reaction to the exile to Babylon. We've been reading out of Jerem- principally out of Jeremiah 31 today. Well, not much long after that in Jeremiah 39, it talks about them getting exiled to Babylon. And their belief was that the exile was the result of them not following the covenant, not keeping the law closely enough. They believed that is why we were sent to Babylon. We don't want that again. And though that's, that's, you know, that's an understandable way of thought for their present context looking at the past, it was also in their present. At the time of Jesus, Israel was not this free nation. They were under Roman occupation, and they constantly lived under the fear that the Romans could send their many, 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 many legions of soldiers at any time. They could wipe us out. They could exile us just like we had been exiled before. And in their mind, that meant we really need to double down on observing the law. And so, if you look at many of the interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees, a lot of it was was them talking about we should be obeying the law more strictly, and Jesus trying to show them that having the law was not about legalistic righteousness. Remember, if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, John showed us that having the law on our minds and on our hearts wasn't meant to be about legalism, like the folks in Jesus' time were talking about, but it, was, but it was meant to bring about a dependence on God and his spirit for transformation. And John is certainly right in saying that, but more importantly than what John taught us, and John is teaching us from what Jesus teaches us, and that's what I'm trying to do too, Jesus told them that a relationship with God was central to the law. When asked by the Pharisees in Matthew 22, which is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And coupled with loving your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said that all of the law and prophets hang on this commandment. It's a relational commandment. And that's to say, whenever you are trying to do something commanded by the law, It should come from love for God and love for neighbors. When you're doing, you know, the law was a very extensive document with a lot of different commandments, but Jesus is telling them here, whenever you're doing any of those, none of that, all of those commandments hang on us loving God and loving our neighbors. And beyond this, so, you know, Jesus brought up the importance of relationship in debating about the law with the religious authorities of his But he also taught it to the people. The disciples that he called, to the people who were following him while he was on earth, he taught this to them as well. When he was teaching his disciples to pray, he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And many of us know the Lord's Prayer. It's an easily memorizable prayer. But after that, Jesus uses two analogies, two different analogies, to encourage people to pray, and these analogies tell them how they should pray. In one analogy, he's talking about a man to his friend's house at midnight, knocking on the window, hey man, hey man, hey man, wake up, wake up, wake up. What? Another friend came to my house unexpectedly on a long journey. I don't have anything to put in front of him. Could you give me some bread? 
Now, I don't know about y'all, but I don't think I would ask that. I don't think I would go to anyone's house at midnight and wake up or now pick up my phone. I, I wouldn't even be bold enough to pick up my phone at midnight and say, hey, I need a couple loaves of bread. Wouldn't happen. Unless that was a close friend that I thought, you know what, this is not, not going to be a one-time thing. I love this person enough, and they love me enough that they're going to be like, we're close, Kevin. For you, I will do this. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to pray to their father and to ask for things in a like manner. The second analogy he uses is about children asking their father for food. Uh, it's the, you know, if they ask for um, uh, um, an egg, you're not going to give them a snake. And if they ask for a, I think I'm mixing that up. No, if, if they ask for a fish, you won't give them a snake. And if they ask for an egg, you won't give them a scorpion. And yet again, now I know, and he says in, in the same way, ask your father for good gifts. And he uses this analogy of two different close relationships, close friends and parents and children, to encourage them, you should be asking God in the same way. And beyond this, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we, 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 the previous example talks about how Jesus taught them to pray, even a prayer he did teach them, the Lord's Prayer. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get to hear a specific prayer of Jesus, and it is a very vulnerable, honest, painful prayer. He's sincerely asking God to take away the cruel fate of the cross. Even though he knew it was the reason he was sent, even though he knew he was sent to make a sacrifice, in his close, humble, honest, vulnerable relationship with God, he's able to say, this is hard, and I don't want to do this. That's very real to admit that. And he had, and, and, and so Jesus taught, he taught about having a closer relationship with God, but he also lived it. And that's certainly evidence, and, and there's many other examples to it. The Gospels tell us that he would wake up early in the morning before the sun was up to go talk to God. So he modeled, he taught have a close relationship with God, and he certainly lived it. Now, though he was very vulnerable and honest with God about not wanting to go to the cross, he was also resolved to submit to the will of God, and of course, went to the cross. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross made it possible for us to have a close personal relationship with God. Matthew 27, 51 tells us that at the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain in the most holy place in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. No longer did you go into the temple's most holy place to meet God. That presence that was once behind that curtain is now out. God, like his son, saying, hey, I am among you and I am waiting for you to seek a close personal relationship with me. So, really with that, this morning, to examine your relationship with God, ask yourself, do I desire a close personal relationship with God? And that is not to exclude the other parts of the new covenant. God wants us to have our, the law in our hearts and on our minds. He wants us to be reading his word. That's one of the ways we get to know him. That's one of the ways we draw close to him. 
that's one of the ways we see his desires. Amen. He wants us to come here collectively and to stand together, to sing together, to pray together. He wants us to do things that show, uh, that show hey, he is our God collectively and we are his people collectively. However, that covenant prophesied of in Jeremiah says that I will know, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So my, you know, my encouragement for us is yes, to examine our relationship with God and pray earnestly to him the way that Jesus did and the way Jesus taught us we should. Because this is, this, it, I don't know how to describe it. Um, everyone craves, we all crave close relationships. We all love close friends. We all love family. And the amazing, the most amazing part of the new covenant is God is inviting us into that kind of relationship with him, has done all of the work to make it possible. His death not only tore the curtain and sent his presence among us, but more importantly, and as we will talk about next week, it forgave our sins, which allows us to draw close to him. So my encouragement for you this morning is to examine your relationship with God and to draw close to him through earnest, honest, vulnerable prayer and connection. And with that, we will have one final song. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. Be sure to check back every Sunday for new sermons listed right here. Subscribe to us on YouTube and like us on Facebook to stay in touch with all that God is doing in the Roanoke Valley Church. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.